This is Tea on the Hudson, a news and lifestyle podcast where we're spilling all of the Hudson County tea and more. My name is Jen Trapuka. I'm the founder of HobokenGirl.com and a Hudson County resident. On this show, we share news, lifestyle topics of interest, interviews, and have guest Hoboken Girl contributors on to delve into the things that matter to local residents. We've taken a brief hiatus in production due to the COVID-19 pandemic, but we're ramping it up this week to discuss the very important topic of antibody testing with our special guest, Dr. David Bogoslavsky, a board-certified physician in family medicine who is also a certified medical acupuncturist on the front lines of COVID-19. We're recording from my house via Zoom, so please excuse the sound quality or connectivity issues and occasional dog bark. I've been drinking a lot of home-brewed decaf coffee from Empire Coffee and Tea, and they just closed their Manhattan location after over a century, but their Hoboken location is still going strong, so make sure to support them. They have dozens of coffee beans available for curbside pickup, and I highly recommend. My husband, who's working from home also, is loving Black Rail Coffee's Bullet Coffee, so that's another one that I highly recommend. Our sponsor for this episode is the historic downtown special improvement district of Jersey City, whose HDSID Farmers Market launched Monday, May 10th with new social distancing protocol. You can actually order in advance online from some of the local produce farms at the market and do contactless curbside delivery, such as stonyhillfarms.com, ortfarms.com slash shop dash online, and Hoboken Farms, which is at njhomedelivery.com. We're super excited that the HDSID Farmers Market is back. So be sure to check out the new Farmers Market with their new protocol and guidelines. And of course, make sure you wear a mask. In Hoboken Girl updates, it has been a tough time for small businesses, ours included. And even though our readership is up actually 400%, times are tough. So we've created some ways for our readers and listeners to support. We've launched an e-commerce part of our site in collaboration with the local thread. This shop, which can be found at hobokengirl.com slash shop, has Hoboken and Jersey City merch like cute crop tops and sweatshirts, crew necks, all different types of things that say Jersey City, Hoboken, Hoboken Girl, Jersey City Girl, lots of fun stuff. And some real men read Hoboken Girl swag, which is fun. And all of the net proceeds go to support our team. And we are actually donating 10% of all net proceeds of sales to Hoboken Volunteer EMS and Women Rising. If you buy something from the Hoboken section of the shop, it goes to Hoboken EMS. And if you buy something from the Jersey City section of the shop, it goes to Women Rising. We've also started a bridal directory, which focuses on showcasing the amazing wedding vendors all around the tri-state area. Brides and grooms planning their special day, regardless of when and how it takes place with all that's going on, can use this vendor directory. And it even includes some special deals for when you're planning. Visit hobokengirl.com slash bridal dash directory to see all of the vendors. And don't forget, you can shop at hobokengirl.com slash shop, which has all of our e-com merch. We've also raised over $12,000 for both the Hoboken Volunteer EMS and FLAG or Frontline Appreciation Group, which raises money to then purchase meals at local restaurants and deliver them to first responders. 
It's so awesome. And thank you again to DJ Cam who made these live sessions possible. He brought everybody together on Saturday nights for a virtual dance party via our Instagram. And it was really a fun time. And we raised so much money for these wonderful organizations. For our news, as things can change so rapidly, you can find all of the latest updates on hobokengirl.com. Today's special guest is Dr. David Boguslavsky, better known as Dr. B, who has over 20 years of clinical experience as a board-certified physician in family medicine and medical acupuncture. Recently, Dr. B has been on the front line of COVID-19 taking care of patients, and this experience and his vast clinical knowledge base has led him to launch a new startup called Back to Work Solutions, leading a team of over 50 clinicians to provide antibody testing prescriptions when appropriate. He's here today via Zoom to talk all about antibody testing and answer reader and listener questions. Well, welcome, Dr. B. Thanks so much for being here. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's so great to see you, and uh, I'd love to have you. I know about your background, but just share with our listeners about your background in the medical field. Sure. Um, I'm a family practice doctor. I graduated Somerset Family Practice in 2006. And I've been taking care of patients since that time. For the most part, it's a traditional family medicine practice, but I'm also always open to complementary techniques such as medical acupuncture and more lately medical marijuana application in terms of helping patients get better with not just the traditional Western medical approaches. And you have been on the front lines of COVID-19. What's your experience been like? So it was kind of crazy. So um, I was traveling in Europe in early February, and when we came back, it was the country was a mess, and the, there was the news of the pandemic, and the patients started calling the practice, and pretty soon I realized that this is coming to the states, and this is coming to my practice. So I had a fairly negative experience with our government in terms of getting the PPE. Obviously, for traditional family practice, we don't usually tend to use a lot of masks or goggles. So I reached out to the state. I reached out to the township. I reached out to the county. And the answer everywhere was like, well, if you want PP, definitely get some for yourself. And by the way, if you find some, let us know where it is so we can get some for ourselves as well. Oh, boy. <laughs> so I wound up um, eventually testing patients with my uh, trusty Home Depot goggles and a mask I got from my kid's dentist, uh, for which I was very grateful because at least I had some protection. And um, there was a lot of problems right off the bat with testing. We didn't have enough testing kits. Our lab was able to provide us with some, but not that many. So fairly immediately, I noticed that knowing whether the patient had COVID or not with a test wasn't really going to make a whole lot of difference in terms of clinical management. So if somebody was positive on the test, I would tell them to go home self-isolate. And if someone was presumptively positive on the test, I would still tell them to go home and isolate. And if somebody was super sick, I would tell them, don't bother with testing, head over to the hospital. So that kind of led to my first insight that we're probably going to drastically underestimate how many cases of COVID there are in the community because we're not testing everyone, whether it's because you can't get access to testing or because the testing itself doesn't drastically alter the management. Right. Now, what's your experience been like with patients that have gotten over COVID? What's their health like now? 
So it's kind of a, COVID is a very, very strange disease. Um, it's definitely not the binary picture you see in the news where somebody's either perfectly fine or somebody's on the ICU on the ventilator. So a lot of patients have a minor illness. They might have very minor symptoms, barely notice it. Other patients will get super, super sick. What's frightening to me is that there are a lot of patients, young people our age, who don't regain full function after having had COVID. And we're talking about being a month out or more, and these people can't sleep through the night because they get shorter breath. They can't walk up the stairs without pausing. Wow. So the level of disability from COVID can be fairly substantial. And that worries me quite a lot because you know people in the media always talk about how many people will die from the disease. But I'm also much more worried about not only those who die, but also those who are left behind with decades of life ahead of them and an uncertain healthcare future. So it's really affecting people more than we would realize in the long term. Yeah, I think that's an, that's an underreported story for sure. Mm-hmm. Now you went and because of all of the experience that you had with this, you realized the importance of antibody testing. And yeah. of course, that plays into so many things, restarting the economy and getting people outside again and able to see their loved ones. Sure. You started a startup called Back to Work Solutions. Can you explain a little bit about what that entails? Sure. So, you know, the story takes place almost a month ago, probably very beginning days of April, where we weren't even done solving the testing kit shortage for answering the first question, which is, do I have COVID now? But already it was pretty evident that much like with other things in medicine, like Lyme disease or measles or mumps or rubella, there's going to come a test that measures your body's response to the infection, known as the antibody testing or serological testing. So very early on, I saw that if we were going to get people back to work, it would be really useful to know who's already had COVID. And if we were drastically underestimating the percentage of people because we weren't testing them, then it would make a lot of sense to look at serology testing as the solution towards figuring out who's already had the disease and is likely but not definitively immune to it. It's really about a benefit of knowing that you've had it or that you have those antibodies. Can you touch a little bit on herd immunity? Because I know that that's a piece of the antibody testing. Sure, absolutely. So the idea is that a person who is infected with the disease can spread it to a certain number of others around him or her. But if people around you are already immune, then your likelihood and your ability to spread the disease is very limited. So let's take a look at an example of that's in the news right now of a meat packing plants where you will have a thousand people, let's say out of 3000, getting sick with COVID at the same time. So that's an example where you have a workplace where people are continuing to work, they're essential workers, but they're not given enough protection, they're not given enough space between each other. So the disease runs rampant. And when you have a herd immunity or where you have a workplace where a lot of people are already immune, then you don't have as much room for the disease to spread. And instead of you know one person taking out an entire department, they might only infect somebody who's just sitting next to them and that's about it. Because other people around them are have the antibodies and are thus not as susceptible to getting the COVID-19 virus. And so the antibody test would help with that. The more people that have the immunity, that means that contracting it would become less common. Correct. I just want to just clarify something a little bit. So there's a little bit of debate as to whether being having positive being positive for antibodies generates and exactly means immunity. So the World Health Organization came out probably about maybe 10 days ago and said, 
Absolutely not. We can't tell definitively that positive antibodies mean lifelong immunity. Right. And I think that's accurate. The argument on the other side is that now this one, we had millions of cases of COVID and you're not seeing thousands upon thousands of people getting COVID twice. In fact, you haven't really had any definitively proven cases where someone has had COVID more than once. There was a cluster of cases in South Korea where the people had originally tested positive for COVID, tested negative, and then tested positive again. And originally people thought that meant that they got reinfected. But on second look, it was just that the testing itself had scored them as false positive the second time around. And in fact, they've only had COVID once. So although it's true that positive antibodies don't necessarily mean immunity, it strongly suggests that if you had COVID, it is unlikely to get COVID again, and certainly so if you have positive antibodies. So with that being said, I know there is some controversy with the antibody testing occurring with the FDA approval. What is this controversy? How accurate are tests? What are those different parameters that are happening? Yeah, so... You know, as you know, there's quite a lot of problems with testing and the testing problems in this country, some people have said is the original sin of COVID-19 management in this country. We were never, we've never had enough tests to begin with. And far, you know, far too many stories exist about what missteps were taken early on that have led us to where we are now. Now, FDA had a whole bunch of red tape and barriers in the beginning that would that have interfered with molecular testing, which is the tests with the nasal swabs that tell you whether you have COVID-19 now. Unfortunately, they went completely the other way when it came to antibody testing. And the bar for approving a test, or at least letting the test be marketed in the United States, came so ridiculously low to the point where the manufacturer of the test could run it on something like 30 samples, self-certify and say, yeah, we did fine. And then those tests were allowed to flow into the United States. So it became like the wild, wild west. So two weeks ago, there was no antibody tests on the market at all. And then all of a sudden you have a market flooded with cheap, crappy, unreliable tests that give you false positive 15 to 50% of the time. Wow. So that is, that is absolutely awful. And a false positive means that you think you've had it, but you, you don't, it. you didn't. Wow. You're absolutely right. So there's two technologies, something called uh, liquid flow and ELISA technologies. And the ELISA technology requires you to actually uh, have a blood sample drawn in a commercial lab. Um, and it's, you know, the typical, you know, blood draw from uh, your vein that gets sent out versus liquid flow technology, uh, almost, think of it, almost like a pregnancy kit, where you drip a little bit of blood uh, finger pricked into a device and it looks for those antibodies. And it sounds like the finger prick I've been hearing, and you can confirm this, is not as well liked and not is well not liked. as accurate. Yeah. yeah, it's not just it's not just it's not liked, it's just terrible. And it gives you a lot of false positives. Mm -hmm. So conversely, the ELISA-based technologies is on independent studies giving you accurate results 97 to 100% of the time. So in my practice, I discourage patients of all kinds from getting the finger prick testing done and to only get ELISA-based tests mm -hmm. uh, from a reputable source. So one example would be the Abbott technology over at Quest Labs. LabCorp is using something as well. And only now... So, so a lab would be a place, that, and you would give the specific lab? Yeah, I would recommend some very specific labs because I feel like if you go to the wrong place, you're still going to get non-FDA-approved uh, antibody testing. And Even with a blood draw? Um, yeah, absolutely. Because it's it. You really want to make sure that the technology they're using is getting that FDA approval. 
So now that we're many weeks out and there's all these stories coming out about the lack of reliability, FDA has gone completely the other way again. And they're making the manufacturers say, okay, please prove to us that your testing works. Now, of course, it should have been done the other way to begin with, that the test shouldn't be allowed on the market unless it can demonstrate reliably that it's accurate. But at least we're moving towards the right direction now. Mm-hmm. That's that's really interesting information because I think a lot of people think all tests that are blood drawn are created equal. So th- yeah. it's important to note that. Now, just as an aside, Hoboken and Jersey City are rolling out their testing for antibodies as well, which I believe includes a blood draw for both. But you're basically saying that it's actually still depending on, I'm not sure if you're familiar with which tests they're doing. I'm not, unfortunately. I'm not sure. So I would make sure that before you get your blood test drawn, that you can confirm or that your listeners and readers can confirm that it's an ELISA-based technology. ELISA. How do you spell that? E-L-I-S-A. Okay. ELISA-based technology that's going to process those results. Um, there have now been a couple of companies that have gotten FDA approval and more are getting approval every day. So one of the things you can always do is you can always ask uh, whoever is the, I guess, the lab running the, the antibody testing fair to find out if that particular lab is using FDA-approved testing to determine the results. And they should have that information. That's not something that should be hidden behind, you know. Sure. Okay. That's good to know. So even if you are getting a test locally, you can ask the city that when you're getting your test. Absolutely. Okay. Great to know. I have one other technical question, and then we have some reader questions that I wanted to ask you. So IgM versus IgG, I don't understand it. Maybe you can explain it. People are saying one test does IgM, some tests do both. Can you explain what that is and what you should be looking for? Absolutely. So one of the ways to think about your immune system is that it's a toolkit with many tools and not all the tools are going to be coming out at the same time. So one of the things that you should sort of appreciate about how amazing our bodies are is that our immune systems are spending their entire lives differentiating and answering answering one question, which is what is me and what is not me? And it uses antibodies to help itself with that process. So what ordinarily happens is if a virus or a bacteria gets chopped up in your bloodstream by your immune system, chunks of it will get brought back. And based on those, um, they're called antigens, those little fragments, your body will produce antibodies, which are three-dimensional structures that will then lock on to something that looks just like it. And in the future, since you've got a bajillion of these little antibodies free-floating through your body, when your body finds something that's coated in those antibodies, it will just absorb it all and and get rid of it. So IgM is a type of antibody that peaks fairly early on from the start of the infection. So if your IgM test is positive, it means that your immune system has recognized the COVID-19 infection and is starting to respond to it, and you're going to see an early rise in IgM. Now, over time, IgM goes away because the acuity of the infection goes away. But as IgM is coming down, you also will have a rise in something called IgG. And that stays with you for an extended period of time. Now, how long is extended? We're not sure yet. So COVID-19 is too new of an illness for us to know for certain. But the more, so the range can be from a few months to a lifetime. And we just don't know yet. But that's the difference between IgM, which is more of an acute phase antibody, versus IgG, which is more of a, longer term immune response. 
And it sounds like IgG would be the one that would keep you healthy for the long term. Absolutely. Yep. These tests test both. So again, it depends on the lab and depends on the maker, depends on FDA approval, et cetera. So for example, um, one of the labs I work with uses something called, I think it was Ethogen Diagnostics. They test both IgM and IgG. LabCorp tests IgG only. Um, Quest tests IgG only as of now. Now things might change. Now, sometimes I've seen cases where somebody will have positive IgM and negative IgG. And that's okay because that means that your illness is too new and that your antibodies will over time evolve from just being purely IgM. IgM levels will drop off and then you'll have IgG and be going forward. So we have so many questions from our readers and I wanted to just read them. They're going to be a little bit random jumping around a bit, but I thought that this would be the best way to get all of the questions answered. Some of them are my own and some of them are from others. So here are a bunch. You ready? Oh, I'm ready. It's, okay. It's so, oh. <laughs> so here we go. It won't be rapid fire, but it will be just random questions. So yes. if somebody has the antibodies or say everyone in your office has the antibodies, but sure. one person does not, or you don't, right. would you be likely to get sick? Uh, so basically in your workplace, you want to have as many people who are antibody positive as you possibly can. Because if the person comes in who does not have antibodies, who is not immune, and who's actively sick with COVID, that person's virus has the potential and room to spread. So the more people you have in the office who are antibody positive, the more you're getting to the point where the virus has nowhere to go. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things I want you to think about is that when we think about our regular office, we hardly assess how many people we come into contact with, people that we see and people that we don't. So, for example, if you're a large multinational with thousands of employees, you probably don't employ your cleaning staff. And yet the cleaning staff might be the ones who spread the disease throughout the office. And when you think about a a common theme in more recent office design, you've had all open workspaces where you don't have a spot that's yours anymore. You're going to come into a workplace and today you're going to sit here and tomorrow you're going to sit there. And how safe will people feel going back to work? when the first 20 or 30 minutes of their day is going to be spent on basically Lysol bombing their entire (laughs) workspace. Oh, it's so depressing. (laughs) Maybe, but also, you know, this is a process and we will have to kind of come up with good, adequate solutions so that people feel safe going back to work. And so that people feel comfortable that when they go to work, they're not going to catch a disease that makes them sick or incapacitates them. I, I think we will get there. I just think it's a process. So you're saying, though, if you go into an office and you don't have the antibodies, you could get, it's still possible, obviously, to get sick if everyone, even if everyone else is, has the antibodies and has had it or something. If everyone around you is antibody positive and you're the only one who is not, the odds of you catching it from your coworkers are close to zero because if you're antibody positive, you're probably not spreading it to others. Because for, for you to be infectious, you need to for the virus to take hold, replicate, and then be excreted so that the virus particles get onto somebody else. Now, can you, this is another question we have, which relates, can you be a carrier still of COVID, but be antibody positive? So, you know, the theoretical answer is anything is possible, but on a practical level, Imagine what has to take place. So if, once you get infected, the virus has to replicate and usually uses your body to make that replication happen. Well, if you've got antibody, there's no replication, not nearly as much replication taking place because 
the infection gets cleared. Your body's on lookout for it. Your antibodies coat the virus particles the moment they hit the bloodstream, and your body just gets rid of that. So I would say that the best scientific evidence for the time being seems to be that no, once you've had COVID, once you have antibodies, you're unlikely, perhaps not zero, but unlikely to be a spreader of COVID. Good to know. How long should you wait to get an antibodies test? Sure. Um, so the I mentioned earlier that there's a lack of reliability, especially in the early testing. So luckily enough, there are a couple of studies coming out now that are looking at the different tests um, test effectiveness and test accuracies. And what they seem to suggest is that 14 days is a really good mark to check or to start seeing accurately positive. From last symptoms felt. Yeah, absolutely. Because that means that there's going to be enough time for your IgM to rise if you're going to form the antibodies and maybe even for your IgG to start uh, coming up. 20 days, great. So, So I would say to answer to your question is 14 to 20 days after the infection, you should be in the clear. And if you're going to have an immune response, you should see that on the testing. I see. Now, if you test negative, is it worth getting a second test at another time? And can you get multiple tests? Yeah. So, you know, one of the ways I think of is there's no sense ordering a test unless you know what that test does for you. So in, in a clinical practice, a good physician doesn't just order every test for every patient because it's not efficacious, it's confusing, and you don't quite know what to do with the value, right? So when it comes to antibody testing, what I counsel my patients is, if your test is positive, that's not a license to go lick park benches, to take off your mask and not wear any gloves. But it's just more of a way of knowing that your individual risk is lower and that you have an extra layer of protection courtesy of your immune system. Conversely, if your test is negative, that means that whatever you've been doing to keep yourself safe is working. So if you've been wearing your mask and wearing your gloves, keep at it. It's doing a great job. If you're doing maintaining good social distancing hygiene, perfect. Keep at it as well. Now, as far as repeating the test, if you suspect you fall into the category of having had the test too soon, in other words, you just got over your COVID infection and you had the antibody test drawn, and it's just not enough time has passed, so your antibodies haven't had a chance to show up yet. Yeah, absolutely. Repeat it in a month. You there's there's no harm to it. If conversely you haven't had any symptoms and you were perfectly fine before you tested negative, then it's just keep doing what you're doing, keep living your life and keep practicing those measures that we talked about earlier. Mask and gloves and washing hands and all of that good you stuff. All the good yep. stuff. <laughs> Can you have had a COVID positive test, but test negative for antibodies? That's another question from a, a listener. Yeah, absolutely. So it turns out there was a really nice study that took a look at it and said, okay, does everyone who have COVID develop antibodies? And the answer seemed to be that you need to think of antibodies not as being either a black or white, uh, either on or off, but more as a gradient. So about 6% of patients with COVID, based on this one study, had no antibody response. And usually that tended to correspond with people who were barely sick at all, where they had very minute symptoms. And their immune system, it's felt, didn't have enough of a viral load to trigger really strong sickness and not enough to trigger a strong enough immune response. That was about 6%. About 14% of patients had some antibody response or an intermediate response, and it's not clear what that response is going to translate into the immunity that we talked about. And then the rest of the patients, so still a pretty healthy amount, about 75 or 80% of patients had a really nice robust immune response and their antibody testing is coming back strongly positive. So is it possible that you can be testing for COVID-19 with a nasal swab and then be negative on antibody testing? 
Yes, in one of two scenarios. One is you're one of the 6% of people who just never made antibodies. Or we tested you at an incorrect time. So in other words, you just finished getting over COVID and then you had your antibody test and it hasn't had a chance yet. Too soon. Too soon, exactly. Okay. Do antibodies, and we've talked about this a little bit, do they go away? How long do they last? I know it's hard to tell and it's okay if you don't know. <laughs> my crystal ball. I know. <laughs> the inquiring minds want to know, but I know it's, it's so, tough to say, so, right? So the answer is we don't know yet because the disease is too new. So, you know, 10 years from now, we might find out that COVID-19 antibodies last with us for a lifetime. And that's, I think, the best case scenario because that means that they're going to be forever circulating in our bloodstream. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a, another version of reality where they wear off after, let's say, three, six, eight months. There's kind of an intermittent, the intermediate road, which is where they start weaning down, but the more exposure you have, the stronger, it's sort of like a booster. And if COVID-19 is with us to stay, let's say you have COVID-19, you formed your antibodies, and six months from now, an infected person kind of sneezes next to you. That COVID-19 extra viral load triggers your immune system to recognize and say, ah, here it is again. We need to really make sure we're staying on top of it and more antibodies will get formed from it. So things that we're exposed to on a repeated basis make our immune systems work much stronger right. and work much better. That's really good information to have. Is there a safe way to get antibodies? I would love, I, I, that's a question that many people had. Can we, can we get antibodies without being fully sick? So, you know, um, I want to say no. Besides a vaccine, of course. <laughs> well, but even that one, that's a great conversation. So is a vaccine an answer? So there are some people yeah. that are saying, absolutely, we can vaccinate everyone. And if we can get over the hurdles of imagining a world where we've, you know, made 7 billion doses of a vaccine. Right. Um, so if we can even get over all the hurdles, there's some serious debates that are going on that are saying, if the immune... Okay, if the vaccine idea is to expose you to something that looks like the virus, but not the virus itself, what if instead it primes your immune system next time you see COVID to just go completely bonkers and overreact and trigger this cytokine storm that actually makes you sicker? Oh, wow. We, we, like a flu shot, some people get really sick from. So not like that. Okay. <laughs> Because, You're the doctor. <laughs> well, but, but it's a but honestly, that's that's worth addressing. So, commonly enough, I've had patients who will, uh, say, like, "Can you get a flu shot?" And they're like, "No, I got a flu shot seven years ago, and I've been sick as a dog." So, it's probably wasn't the flu shot that made you sick as a dog. You probably mm -hmm. had the flu. So, most vaccines, unfortunately, are not a hundred percent effective, and that's kind of how you should think about this as well, that mm. even if the vaccine comes out or even if you have antibody test, even if your antibody tests are positive, it's not a black and white situation where sure. you have a universal, clear, go free forever. It's a, right. it's a risk gradient that is much safer than it was before, but it's not a zero. Yeah. I would like to clarify that I do get the flu shot and I... Oh, fantastic. <laughs> Good job. Good job. But, I, I but I will say... Yeah, it's it's an interesting concept, the longevity of things and if it really will work even as a vaccine. So it's you know, super cost. I want let that. us hope. I would love that. There's a few more questions we have. Thank I wanted you. to touch a bit on mortality rate because now that we're doing antibody testing and there's more testing available, I assume we'll find more people that have had COVID than previously thought. 
Let, that's right. the hope, of course. What will that show for the mortality rate? So that's a great question. So there was a couple of studies that came out, I want to say a week or two ago, based on early antibody studies done in New York, where studies have showed that something like between 25 and 30% of people in New York City may have already had COVID, right? So on paper, that makes the mortality rate much lower because the mortality rate is number of dead over the number of sick. So if the number of sick is much higher, then the mortality rate is much lower. The problem that I feel in that line of thought is that you neglect to think of what happens to people who didn't have COVID, who didn't get care. So for example, I had a patient, uh, this is you know ripped from the headlines kind of story. So I had a patient who came in who was super sick. His uh, cholesterol level, the triglycerides were 4,000, normally somewhere around 300. Wow. He was a newly discovered diabetic. His hemoglobin A1C was 15, normally should be somewhere around 6.5 or lower. And this is a person who really belongs in the hospital. They would get much more intensive care than I was able to provide. But at the time of the, of the peak of pandemic in New Jersey, which is where um, you know, obviously I'm practicing, so I'm seeing him, I didn't feel safe sending him into the hospital for that care. So multiply that one patient by the number of other patients who have all sorts of other illnesses that are now going to the hospitals. And what you're seeing is, even though the rate mortality rate from COVID itself is going to be lower, when you're seeing the mortality in a place, it's dramatically higher. So there have been now studies that looked at mortality just from all different causes in New York, New Jersey, and it almost looks like a hockey stick, where when COVID arrived, mortality from all causes went down. And that's partially the story of decreased access to care. So COVID mortality itself might be overestimated, but you can't overestimate what COVID does to a community. And it takes out a healthcare system. My local hospital was at some point 87, 89% COVID positive patients. And that means that those beds that were ordinarily used for people with heart attacks, strokes, pneumonias are just not available. And people are right. trying to manage this stuff at home and outpatient. And this is terrifying. Real, yeah. And this has real life consequences for sure. And speaking of that, this was just a question that. I've had about flattening the curve. Sure. I know that flattening the curve is not just, just because we flattened it does not mean that we can just go about our lives. Is that correct? Sure. Can you explain a little bit about what sure. flattening the curve does and what that truly means for us? Sure, absolutely. So um, I'm going to try drawing with my hands and we'll see if that works. Okay. <laughs> so if you imagine a tall peak which is what they had in Belarus, where they didn't practice any social distancing, they didn't practice any sort of uh, mask, gloves, or any kind. The basis that we're just gonna let the disease go through our population. So you have a very tall peak where a lot of people get super sick, a whole lot of them die. And then eventually enough of them form immunity that you can kind of live your life forward. The problem with that is that we're not Belarus and our population is 300 million. So letting that happen in the United States would just be pretty terrible. And you'd have to be like a psychopath or a sociopath to say that's a good idea. So we came up with a different strategy where we flatten the curve. So instead of the curve reaching way up high in the peak like you do in Belarus, it only goes up a little bit. But unfortunately, you don't change the area under the curve. So if you didn't go, get to go quite as high, that means you just have to much lower, much more tolerable level where the healthcare system doesn't get overwhelmed and can manage the m amount of kind of COVID-related damage that it, that happens from this, this disease. So it's essentially keeping hospital beds open and available for people who need... 
we'll say, we'll say open-ish. Where, open-ish. <laughs> open-ish, yes, absolutely. Where we're, by flattening the curve, we are reducing the impact from COVID to a horribly tolerable level where we can at least manage it versus, you know, people dying in the hallways because they can't get a bed, can't get an event. So, so we're preventing that level of extreme morbidity, but we're not bringing down to zero. We're not, you know, my hospital isn't down to zero COVID patients. It's still 45% occupied with COVID positive patients. Some of whom are pretty sick. Mm -hmm. I think that is just a common misconception that I'm glad you cleared up. I agree. Absolutely. Now, a few more questions about your business, because I know you just created this back to work solutions startup. And I wanted to just share with our listeners about it. Do patients have to be employed by a company that uses back to work solutions or can they be tested as an individual who's not affiliated with a company? Because I know the point of it is to help employers be able to get their workforces back together. So that was the original idea is that we were trying to help companies trying to open up the workforce, but at the same time, we didn't feel it was right to limit our knowledge and expertise purely to corporations. So if you go to our website, www.backtoworksolutions.com, there's a tab that says for individuals, and you simply click on that, you make an appointment. We work with many different insurances, and even if you're uninsured, we discount our rates and we give special rates for first responders because... Once again, this was an example where our government isn't taking care of people on the front lines of COVID and we wanted to do our part to help them. How can people get in touch with you if they're interested in doing this? So they go to the website and then uh, they can just so, set up an appointment? So there, yeah, so um, there's, it's not exactly an appointment system because we just have so many patients who are trying to obtain this sort of service. So what people do is they make an appointment request and then my staff get them in touch with a clinician who is educated in this particular area, clinician who is comfortable talking about it, understanding what the results mean, clinician who is going to guide them towards the proper test that's not going to give you a false positive 15 to 50% of the time. And then, and then we work with you and we have a telemedicine visit. Um, it's done from the comfort and safety of your home. We take your history, we assess your risk, we provide you with an antibody testing prescription. You then uh, print that prescription out or bring it over on your cell phone over to the commercial lab that we feel has the good tests that are FDA approved. And then we stay in touch with you as far as the results go. And we give you some guidance as far as how to interpret those results. You know, oftentimes they're positive and negative, but even those seemingly simple results as positive or negative have a lot of real life implications and real life questions as like, well, what does it mean for me? Does the fact that I'm antibody positive mean that I can just leave my mask at home and just you know, go to carpets in the park? Right. So I work with a. I'm incredibly lucky to work with a clinical team of uh, physicians, physician assistants who are dedicated to this area and who have, you know, acquired some unique expertise and can give you and your readers and listeners guidance as to picking the right path for them. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful, and I think much needed hope at this time because we are all very stressed. I'm sure some, yeah, you know. <laughs> We are, we're trying, we're all trying our best right now and it's great. Do you have any other words of wisdom or hope that you want to share with our listeners? So for me, the thing that is, um, that I feel is under, underspoken of is that we will get through this. There's, there's no way but forward. We are, this is not the first pandemic we've seen. It's the first pandemic I've seen, but we as a species, certainly (laughs) whether many others, um, we will get through it. It's, it's a process, though. It's, this pandemic is with us for some time. 
Um, this is not something that will be gone by June. This is not something I feel it will be gone by July. And I think we are going to spend some time measured in months to years dealing with increased risk in our lives. But risk can be managed, whether it's through antibody, whether it's through testing, whether it's through exposure, whether it's preventive measures, whether it's vaccines, whether it's medicines. We, as physicians in the scientific community, will continue to work on making people safe and we're here for people. I, I feel like that's that's kind of the positive message is that this is a process, but we'll get through to the other side without a doubt. Yes. And believe science. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. It was so great to chat with you. And again, how can people find you if they'd like to schedule a request for an appointment? Sure. Uh, people can go to www.backtoworksolutions.com. And then click on the tab that says for individuals. This is also important. If you're an employer who's listening to this, we can help you bring your people back to work safely. So definitely reach out to us as well. We'd love to help out. Awesome. Thank you so much again, Dr. B. Please stay safe, be well, and we'll see you soon. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed our, our time. While we don't have a self-care guest this week, I do have a self-care tip. Whatever makes you feel happy this week is what you should be doing. We're in the midst of a pandemic and it's okay to not be okay some days and you don't have to learn how to make sourdough bread by the end of this. Watching Bravo and eating chips as your self-care is absolutely 100% fine too. A nonprofit I encourage you to donate to this week is the Hoboken Community Center's Food Pantry. The HCC is one of the oldest public service agencies in the city, supporting low-income and food insecure people in Hoboken. HCC is heavily focused on the increased needs of the community as we go through this pandemic. And they started a food pantry in the fall of 2019 with an ever-increasing need during everything happening with COVID-19. They're not accepting walk-up donations at this time, but they do have a wish list on Amazon and a secure monetary donations page on their website. The need is huge, so please consider donating to hobokencc.org. And that concludes this episode of Tea on the Hudson. Major thanks to Dr. B for coming on our show, our production team, Van Voorst Films, and Mike Soul for our music. Look out for some new episodes coming soon. We have pre-recorded interviews and new interviews coming your way. Make sure to subscribe, share, and rate Tea on the Hudson wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us spread the word. You can also get in touch with us by following at Tea on the Hudson on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and email teaonthehudson at gmail.com with any inquiries. See you soon for a new episode.